When uh, the people from Bishop Kelly called me yesterday and told me that the roof over the library collapsed, my first thought was that Bernie Friend had brought the roof down in his uh, Sunday morning class. And then Carolyn reminded me that I was the last person to teach in that room. I taught uh, Pardon's class last Sunday. I hope that's not uh, symbolic of anything. It reminded me of the story of that's told by one of the... Uh, church fathers about John the Apostle who went to one of the baths in Ephesus, one of the public baths. And while he was in there baiting himself, a noted uh, heretic, Serenthus, came in to take a bath. And John gathered up his clothes and ran out the front door shouting, Flee for your lives. Serenthus, the heretic, is here. The roof may fall upon his head. So uh, I hope that's not uh, can't be applied to last uh, Sunday, but it can be applied to the passage that we're going to talk about this morning, the second chapter of Second Peter, where Peter talks about this uh, issue of false prophets and false teachers and how we should uh, respond to them. If you remember, in chapter one, Peter's concern is to establish that the apostles. And prophets have the last word about the Christian faith. If you want to know what Christians believe, read the New Testament. That's God's final authoritative word on the subject. There is no need to update it. It doesn't have to be revised. We go back to the apostles and their teaching for our understanding of the Christian faith. So uh, when someone shows up on your front porch and they tell you that they have had a later revelation or their translation more accurately represents what the apostles taught, that the church has distorted over the years, the plain teaching of the apostles and their translation gives you a more accurate update, do not believe them. We go back to the apostles for our authority. As John says, we don't go on. We don't need to revise the gospel. We go back to the gospel that Jesus and the apostles taught. That's the Christian message. The apostles were very self-conscious of their authority. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, said, uh, When you received my word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God that is at work among you. They had no question about their authority. They understood that Jesus' authority was passed on to them. It was not, uh, at least it's my belief, that it was not passed on to the next generation. The apostles had unique authority, but they did have the same authority that Jesus had. And therefore, we, we go back to their writings for our understanding of the gospel. But in chapter 2, Peter does say we can expect false teachers and false prophets to arise. It's inevitable. And we need to be alert to their presence, and we need to know how to respond to them. Now, this is a very difficult passage to expound, because uh, Peter is angry. Uh, it's not wrong, you know, to be angry. There are certain things that ought to anger us. There's something wrong, as Steve said last week, about someone who doesn't get angry over certain things. And uh, Peter is enraged. Uh, there is a sinful anger, an anger that endures resentment and bitterness that goes on is wrong. But there's nothing wrong with flaring up in anger over 
things that are indeed wrong. And this is what uh, is affecting Peter. His emotions are at stake here, and, and uh, he seems to go around and around on the same theme. It's difficult to find a line to pursue all the way through. But there are two ideas that are very clear. One, a description of the deeds of these false prophets, and secondly, their destiny. Now, what I would like to do is read this rather lengthy passage. It probably should be split into two sections, but it doesn't really, uh, as far as I'm concerned, bear two Sundays' worth of preaching. What I would like to do is uh, teach uh, all the way through this chapter so that you get the sweep of thought. I'll read through it, make some comments about it, and then come back and, and make some observations. Peter says, but... False prophets also will arise among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The presence of false teachers in the church, Peter says, is inevitable. Jesus predicted it in the Olivet Discourse. He said there will be false prophets that will arise among you and they will mislead many. They'll be per so persuasive, in fact, that were it not uh, for the grace of God, even the elect would be, uh, would be deceived. And John, in his letters, anticipates the coming of the spirit of Antichrist that is uh, not, uh, not direct attacks upon Christ, but... Uh, Someone similar to Christ, very much like Christ, who will arise, but who is not uh, not Christian. Their message is not Christian. And so we can anticipate the presence of these false teachers. Secondly, he says their method is to secretly introduce destructive heresy. They will insinuate themselves into the body. Their attack will be insidious. It's not an obvious counterattack upon the gospel, but they will appear as though they are Christians. They will use the name Christian. They will call themselves Christian. They will say that their teaching is Christian, but they are not because they deny the master who bought them. That is, they deny the message that the apostles themselves delivered. So, again, when someone comes to you and says, well, we're Christian, but uh, the apostles were wrong at this point, or the translations have been distorted at this point, True Christianity is something other than what is found in the New Testament. Peter says that's a false teaching. Don't believe him. However, in verse 2, he says, There are many who will follow their sensuality. They will have a tremendous impact upon the world. Their influence will be great. They will turn many on to their sensuality, but they will at the same time turn many off to the gospel. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. That's because uh, so many of these sects who call themselves Christian but are not really Christian really have no way of dealing with the real sins of the flesh, the secret sins of resentment and bitterness, the more obvious and flagrant moral problems they uh, can address, but these sins of the spirit, pride and self-righteousness they really have no answer for because apart from the cross, there's no way to cut off the self-life. And as a result, Peter says, many will turn away from the gospel. They'll think that's Christianity. They'll say, well, if that's what being a Christian is, forget it. I don't want any part of it. You know, it's interesting that uh, Albert Schweitzer 
uh, who profess to be a Christian may well be one of the best illustrations of this principle. Schweitzer was a theologian, musician, medical doctor, brilliant man, uh, well-known in Europe. He was a Frenchman. Uh, he considered himself a Christian, was in the Protestant church, but was not at all a believer. If you've read any of his writings, you know that he denied the master who, who bought him. He simply did not accept the New Testament. Most of his writings, his early writings, were concerned with the search for what he called the historical Jesus, that is, to ferret out among the so-called myths in the New Testament the real Jesus. And he denied his deity, he denied his atoning death on the cross. He went off to French Equatorial Africa to establish a hospital, and he was held up as an example of Christian love and, in some sense, martyrdom. But if you know anything at all of the results of his life in French Equatorial Africa, missionaries in that region today say that it is very difficult to get a hearing for the gospel because when he went there, he was an absolute tyrant. He ruled without mercy. And uh, there was no real compassion or love in the man's life. His hospital was filthy, and uh, he demanded that everyone cater to his ego, and he literally turned off a nation. Uh, it's really sad. And he is even today held up as a paragon of Christian mercy, but, but only by people who do not understand what really went on in this man's life. And that's what Peter is talking about. There will be those who will go out naming the name of Christ who do not know him, who do not believe the message of the apostles, and their life will not reflect the grace and the courtesy and the gentleness and the love and the courage of real Christians, and the result will be many who are turned away from the gospel. They'll say, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want it. I'll be a Buddhist or something else. Now, he goes on in verse 3, their greed and their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is the word about their motives. They really want something more, money or power or prestige. They're not uh, honest in their approach. There are underlying motives with which they will exploit you. Their judgment from long ago, he says, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We often wonder why God lingers in his judgment. Uh, and yet, Peter says, though it appears that God is asleep, it's not true. There will be a judgment, and then what follows is a description of three historic judgments, judgments in the past that uh, God did... Uh, did an act. Verse 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Here he may be referring to what Milton called the Grand Rebellion, the Great Rebellion of Satan and his angels sometime in, the, in eternity past. Or it may be a reference to that unusual description in Genesis 6 of angels that infiltrated the human race. We don't know. But his point is that the highest of God's created order, uh, angels are judged. If they don't escape, how can, will we think that anyone else will? And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, which he, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This, of course, is a reference to the Noahic flood, the flood during the time of Noah. Noah. And he, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. The catastrophic overthrow of these cities 
even today exists as an example of how thorough God's judgment is. They just uh, cease to exist. And if he rescued righteous Lot, which is a peculiar statement when you think about Lot and his character, but here he's described as a righteous man. We'll see in a moment why that's so. Oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. <clears throat> Verse 9, Then, and this is his conclusion, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment under the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And, and then this idea of their rebellion against authority takes him off on another line, and he <coughs> begins to uh, speak specifically about their rebellion. Daring, he says, audacious is the idea, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic, angelic majesties. That is, they're not afraid to slander angels. I don't know that anyone knows exactly what, what Peter's talking about. Perhaps they were saying if the angels described in Genesis 6 could uh, go after uh, human women with impunity, then so can we. Yeah, we don't know exactly what he had in mind. But uh, his point is clear. They have no appreciation for authorities of any kind. They are rebels. And then in verse 12, but these, like unreasoning animals, that is, like brutes, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, like beasts they will perish. That's what he means by the phrase, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering harm as the wages of doing harm. They do not get away scot-free, though the mills of God's justice grind slowly, as someone put it, they do grind exceedingly fine. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're out in the open about their, their evil. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, probably a reference to their involvement in the, the love feasts of the early church. They pretended to be Christians. They worshipped with Christians. They were there with them, but they were not Christians. Having eyes full of adultery, the term actually is adulteresses. That is, they saw every woman as a potential adulteress, someone to be possessed. And they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, they not only practice evil, but they promote it. Having a heart trained at greed, cursed children, really warming to his task here, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, a reference to an obscure character in the Old Testament by the name of Balaam, who was a wizard from the east, pagan prophet, who sold out and cursed Israel for money. Balak, the uh, uh, king of Moab, hired him to curse Israel. And for what Peter calls the wages of unrighteousness, he forsook the right way. And then in verse 17, these are springs without water. They're a big disappointment, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. That is, they prey on new believers, promising them liberty, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Simply saying what Jesus and the other apostles say, that sin persisted in will enslave you. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. These people apparently knew the way of righteousness. They had gone quite a ways, quite a way in, in their relationship with Christ. They could say we know him, but they didn't really know him. These people didn't lose their salvation. They were never really Christians. That's clear from his illustration because their nature was never changed. They were never regenerated. They still had an old nature and, uh, at the, at a particular time, uh, they reverted to their old nature. When I was, when I lived in Texas, I used to raise uh, hogs. And, uh, I, I am, uh, actually I, I have a, a claim to fame. I, I had the heaviest letter, litter of pigs at one time in the state of Texas. That's my uh, one claim to fame. Um, they, they asked me to bring the, my sow to uh, the state fair of Texas to exhibit her and uh, she was kind of an ugly, uh, pig. She was yellow. She was a Duroc. She was supposed to be a nice uh, cordovan color, but this uh, pig was yellow, and so we got cordovan shoe polish and and uh, dyed her uh, a lovely mahogany color and shined up her hooves, and uh, she was just a beautiful pig to look at, and she lived in, in a nice clean stall on clean straw for about a month, and then we took her home back to the farm, and uh, the first thing she did when we unloaded her from the pickup was to find a, a mud puddle and fall in it on her side and just roll over on her back, and you could just see a big smile on her face. She just she just loved it. She was literally in hog heaven, uh, happiest pig I ever saw, and it just proved to me that pigs are pigs. You can clean them up, but, but they will go right back uh, to being pigs because that's her nature. Now, that's exactly what Peter is saying. He's not calling his people pigs, but he's saying they're like those who revert to their own nature. They were not regenerated. They professed to believe Christ, but when the chips were down, they turned away from it. They denied the master who bought them. Now, that's a a quick uh, run-through of the passage to give you some idea of where Peter is going. I want to make two or three observations from it in the time that we have left. The first is that Peter is not here talking about the average run-of-the-mill non-Christian. He's talking about false teachers, those who call themselves Christians and who teach within the Christian church but who do not teach what the apostles taught about the person and work of Christ. And that's an important distinction to make. That's why Peter is so harsh You never find Jesus and the apostles exhibiting harshness toward unbelievers. Jesus was the friend of sinners, as the Gospels put it. And the word for sinners there is the word for the irreligious, those that never went to the synagogue, those that never gave God the time of day, those that didn't care, even those that were hostile to God. Peter's not talking about that kind of person. Our Lord was always uh, comfortable and at ease and gracious and courteous toward non-Christians, and so should we be. He's talking about false prophets here. I have quoted this passage before, but it's well worth looking at again. In 2 Timothy 
2. Verse 24. I wish someone would make uh, make this into a poster and I would just put it on the wall and point to it periodically. 1 Peter 2.24 And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. The word means argumentative. It's a sin to be argumentative. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, even when people oppose your gospel, when they get hostile, when they get mean, they go on the attack. Paul says, be patient with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, Christians, as I've said before, are not the enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. They have been victimized by Satan. And if we go after them, we're going after the wrong enemy. Paul says in this passage, we are to speak truth to them, but we're to do it in gentleness and with love and courtesy and with compassion. And if we do so, they may be delivered from the one who holds them captive to do his will. If they're to be delivered at all, this must be the methodology that, that we use. That's Paul's point. There's an interesting incident that Luke records in his gospel. Jesus and his disciples were making their way through Samaria. And uh, Luke uh, says that Jesus had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and die. And the Samaritans didn't like that. They had a mountain up there where they thought uh, one should worship. And the Lord was going in another direction. And it says they did not receive him. In other words, they wouldn't have him in their homes. They rejected him. And James and John, the two sons of thunder, uh, thundered. And they said, shall we call down fire from heaven on them? And the Lord rebuked them, Luke says. And though the, the best and oldest texts don't include this information, other texts include what may well be a memory from some of the apostles of this time, the content of his rebuke. He said to them, You do not know what spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men, but to save them. Now this is the spirit that we ought to maintain. And it's just good to keep that distinction in mind that we're not here talking about non-Christians in general, but rather uh, those that teach, propagate error. We ought to be courteous and kind even to those that are hostile. I uh, have to ask myself the question, what do, uh, what do people see in my eyes, on my face, when they tell uh, dirty jokes, when they take God's name in vain, uh, when they talk about their sexual exploits? Do they see self-righteousness and disdain and rejection? Or do they see real compassion and love? They apparently saw that in the Lord because non-Christians were not afraid, non-believers were not afraid to seek him out. They apparently did not see him as a condemning person. He spoke the truth. He never uh, compromised on the truth, but there was a gentleness and compassion and love about him that drew unbelievers to him. And that ought to be our demeanors as well. The second thing I uh, notice in this passage is that we can here learn how to recognize false teachers. The uh, test is given in verse 1. 
they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, and this is the heresy that destroys. They will deny the master who bought them. That is, they deny what the apostles taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was God who became flesh and lived among us and gave up his life for us as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, and he rose again as God's declaration that the thing was done and was right. And he reigns today uh, in, in heaven alongside the Father. Now that is the basic Christian message. That's the heart of the gospel. And if someone believes that and has submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ, in that sense, they are Christians. And if they don't, they are not. It doesn't make any difference what sort of morality they profess. If they deny that Jesus is the Lord, then they're not Christian. Now, this means that uh, we ought not to call false prophets those who are not false prophets. The heart of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as long as a person accepts that, uh, that teaching from the apostles, then they are Christians, regardless of what they believe about other things, what they believe about baptism, for example, or the end times, whether they believe the rapture is before or after the tribulation, or what they believe about the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to Israel, or what they believe about church polity, how the church should be run. Those are all peripheral things, and we need to decide what we believe, but that's not the great issue. It's not the great issue. It's the person and work of Christ. It's interesting what the disciples consider to be the irreducible minimum of Christian teaching. There is one, or in fact there are a number of statements, but perhaps the most helpful is in 1 Timothy. If you'll turn back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. By common confession, in other words, this is a common confession. This is one of the first creedal statements of the, of the early church. This is what the early church believed. Great is the mystery of the religion. The word that's translated godliness here is simply the Greek word for religion, and though that word has fallen on hard times with us, we don't like to talk about religion. It's a perfectly good term. It means the will of God. And uh, Paul says this is the will of God. This is, this is the basis of our faith. This is what the faith is. He, or God, was revealed in the flesh. The incarnation. God became man. Was vindicated in the spirit. It's Paul's way of referring to the resurrection. In Ephesians he says he was put to death, in, or pardon me, Peter says he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So the resurrection is the vindication, is God's vindication that he that the son's actions were righteous and good and acceptable, accepted the sacrifice. Beheld by messengers is the word. The Greek word angelos just means messengers. It's a reference to the witnesses that saw Jesus after the resurrection. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul says, that's it. If you want to know what our religion is all about, that's it. And if you believe that, you're in. And if you don't, you're not. It's just that simple. We have to believe that God was manifest in the flesh, that he went to the cross for our sins, 
that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father, that he rose bodily, literally, from the dead, and he's reigning today. That's the sum and substance of Christian faith. Paul puts it another way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered unto you what I also received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, how he was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and he was seen by many witnesses. That's it. That's my gospel. That's what I preach. And if you believe that, you're a Christian, and if you don't, you aren't. You know what strikes me? It's how easy it is for us to exclude people that we think are not Christians on the basis of things that we add to what the apostles believe is the irreducible minimum of Christian experience. I remember once when our staff back at the other church where I served was talking about our rather exhaustive and detailed doctrinal statement that it dawned on us that Martin Luther could not join our church. He could never be a member of our church because of his views on the sacraments, the sacramentalists. We never would have accepted him on the basis of our doctrinal statement. John Calvin and Calvin couldn't have joined our church because he was an amillennialist. And John Stott couldn't have for the same reason. Nor could Francis Schaeffer for the same reason. And uh, we, our, our doctrinal statement had a word in there about baptism that had to be by immersion. Where do we get that idea? Now, for myself, I believe that baptism in the New Testament was by immersion. The word seems to indicate that. All the illustrations of baptism in the, in the New Testament seem to, be, uh, seem to involve immersion. But it makes no difference whether you're immersed or someone pours water on you or dips you in it or dunks you or drips it on you. It doesn't make any difference. What difference does it make? You need to make up your mind about what you believe. But we shouldn't cut someone off because they don't hold a particular mode of baptism that we hold. Or because they speak in tongues and we don't. I'm not charismatic, but we can't be anti-charismatic. Or because someone has a different view of the millennium or the rapture of Christ and we tend to divide ourselves up into little sects and we have anything to do with anyone else because they don't believe exactly as we believe. Well, perhaps they are wrong. I think everybody that disagrees with me is wrong. But, <laughs> but that's all right. They're brothers. All I'm saying is let's, uh, let's call pro- false prophets uh, false prophets that are truly false prophets. Charismatics are not false prophets in general. And others are not. See, we, we just need to get that straight. If someone acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord, he or she is a Christian and my brother. But uh, if they don't, then they are not Christians. If they are unbelievers, then I need to love them and reach out to them. If they are false teachers, then there is something else that needs to be done. And Peter tells us we are to leave their judgment to God. Isn't that interesting? It is not my job to go around and stamp out heresy, to mount a crusade, or to run an inquisition. It's not my job. Peter says God will take care of them in his own time and in his own way. My responsibility is to preach the gospel. And if someone is teaching error, it's right and proper to tell a person who might be in that system that that is error because it contradicts Scripture, but it's not my job. 
the heresy hunt and to try to correct all the evil in the world, I'm going to leave that to God and let him take care of it. I have something better to do. There was a time when the Pharisees were giving our Lord such a hard time and the opposition was mounting and the disciples came to Jesus and he seemed to be totally unaware of what was going on. They said, don't you realize what the, what the Pharisees are doing? And the Lord said a very significant thing. He said, every bush that my Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Leave them alone. Hosea says the same thing with regard to the northern kingdom. When they began to go into captivity and into idolatry, he says, Ephraim is going his own way. Leave him alone. We have something better to do than hunt down heretics. We can point, to pe- point people to Christ who are in those systems and correct them according to Scripture and we can reach out to those that don't know the Lord Jesus, but let's leave the final and absolute judgment of false prophets to the Lord. The final thing that I see in this passage, or a number of others, but we're running out of time, is that the real safeguard for any of us against uh, falling into the uh, clutches of false teachers is a heart for God. You notice in Peter's conclusion uh, to... Uh, the section from 4 through 10, the Lord, he says, knows, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to judge the unrighteous. I don't, so I'll leave that to him. But he also knows how to deliver the righteous from trial. He did in the case of Noah. Noah was a man who had a heart for God. And God delivered him. And apparently, though Lot seems to... uh, it's hard to find any instances of righteousness in, in Lot's life. Apparently, there was a heart for God, and so God delivered him. This leads me to believe that the only people who get caught in cults are people who want to be there. If someone has a heart for God and a real desire to follow Him, if they're pursuing after God with all their heart, they'll never be deceived, or they won't be deceived very long. They'll be delivered. So we don't need to worry get anxious about our friends that might be caught in some false teaching. We need to help them out, as Jude says. We need to snatch them as, as brands from the fire. But we don't need to get anxious because if they really have a heart for God, they will in time realize the error of the system that they're in and they'll get out of it. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. when He points out that all who are in Asia were defecting. However, he says, the Lord has this twofold foundation. He knows those that are His. No one's going to get away who really belongs to Him. And secondly, everyone who names the name of Christ will depart from iniquity. If they genuinely want God's will in their life, then they'll see the error in the system. I was talking to Leave Ivans this morning after the morning service, and she told me how she spent so many years of her life just wandering around from one sect or cult to the next and going into Eastern mysticism and all sorts of things. And all the way along, she kept, she was able to see the error of every system. And God would lead her out into something else that gave her more truth until eventually she met the Lord. So uh, as we send our young men and women off to college, we don't need to fear that they're going to be caught up in some ungodly system and destroyed spiritually. And the best uh, defense is not to necessarily to arm them with the knowledge of C.S. Lewis and Gordon Clark and Bernard Ram and all those good apologetic systems, although they may be helpful. There's nothing wrong with that. 
The best defense is to encourage them to pursue after God with all of, of their hearts as He's revealed in the Scripture. And if we're doing that, then God will protect us. And that's really the question. What do I want? God will give us what we want. If we don't want Him, then He'll let us become deceived. But if we want Him, He'll give us Himself and all that He is. <coughs> Let's stand together. Father, we, uh, we thank You so much for this encouraging word and yet a word of warning. Thank You for alerting us to what we can expect. Help us not to be surprised and shocked when we find counterfeit versions of the faith. Help us not to be demoralized by them, but to realize that uh, they do have the effect of, of purging your church. As Paul tells us, it's necessary that heresy come, that those that are true might be approved. We want to be approved, Lord. We want a heart to know you, to know your word. Help us to pursue you with all of our heart. And to be sensitive to the people around us that need to be alerted to the truth. Help us to rescue them. And to do so in a spirit of love and compassion. Deliver us from self-righteousness and being hard-line. Rejecting those that are outside. Grant to us the same sort of spirit that you had. That sent you to save and redeem. And not to judge and condemn. Help us to realize that they are lost, but to seek and save them as you did with a loving heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.